Hello and welcome to the third episode of us exploring languages and communication here in the age of humans. My name is Ludas and I'm your host for the occasion. Today we'll talk about lingua francas, their past, and with the help of an expert in the field, their possible futures. If you don't follow us already, you're welcome to do that. We have an Instagram channel called Age of Humans, where we share some extra material related to the topics that we discuss. And you might find it interesting. I say that today's episode had turned out quite dense. So buckle up and let's get to it. Imagine, it's the mid 18th century. You, just like your father before you, are a merchant. With your fleet of a few ships, you sail the eastern Mediterranean seas, buying here, selling there, bringing the profits to your family at home to Limassol. At home, you speak Cypriot Greek, with your wife, children, and childhood friends, and your parents. This is in fact the language you learned from your parents, a language that you cannot remember not knowing. In other words, Cypriot Greek is your mother tongue. But out there, on the docks, when you are making your living, you talk a different tongue. It sounds a bit like Italian for one who does not know Italian. For those who do, it might resemble French or Catalan instead. Here and there you hear some words clearly from the east of Mediterranean, say Turkish. It's not a language one could compose poetry in. It's somewhat limited in application to the business setting you're in. Although, truth be told, diplomats also often use it as the language of preference. But, for all you care, knowing this language allows you to sail from Athens to Izmir, from Beirut to Alexandria, and seamlessly do business. It is equally true for Greeks, Turks, Palestinians, and Berbers. This language is the Mediterranean lingua franca, in both senses of the word. Let me explain. This weird melting pot of a language we've been talking about is referred to as Mediterranean lingua franca. In direct translation, the Mediterranean language of the Franks. Franks is actually how the Byzantines called all Western Europeans at the time. This was a Pidgin language that had developed in the Eastern Mediterranean to ease trade in the region. A Pidgin language is a kind of grammatically simplified tongue that develops between two or more groups that do not have a common language. Anyway, Mediterranean lingua franca sounded similar to Italian because of relative domination of the Italians in the Mediterranean commerce at the time. It was in use between the 11th and the 19th centuries, mostly by merchants and diplomats, and was also known by other names such as Sabir language or the bastard Spanish. Over time, the term lingua franca has evolved to describe any language used for communication between people groups that do not have a common language. Now, before delving deeper into the topic, let's clarify the terminology, just for the sake of general understanding. Imagine two or more groups that do not have a language in common, but nonetheless want to communicate. They have a couple of options to choose from. Option 1. By trying very hard to communicate, they could develop what is called a Pidgin language. Again, just to clarify, it is a language with limited function and simplified grammar. These are the traits identifying Pidgin. Pidgin can be based on one or more languages. Mediterranean lingua franca, as mentioned before, 
was a pidgin language based on Italian, Spanish, Greek, etc. etc. There are also many examples of pidgins originating during the colonial times as the means of communication between the slave and the master. Most of these are based on large imperial languages, such as English, French, or Portuguese. Over time, these people can generate a functional language, and this brings us to options 2 and 3. Option 2 covers the case where the functional language that these people generate is based on a multilingual pidgin. In this case, they end up with a Creole language. In a sense, Creole is pidgin on the next level. Creole is completely functional, used in local communities and acquired by children as a mother tongue. Hence, the two identifying factors of Creole are full functionality and multilingual origin. Colonialism, again, has left the world with numerous Creole languages, most of them based on French and English. If the Pidgin, however, is based completely on one language, with it improving, it starts resembling the original more and more. In effect, the next evolutionary stage of such monolingual Pidgin is, well, the language it is based on. And this is the third option. In that case, the community can be said to have attained the lingua franca a pre-existing language that serves as a vessel of communication between the people groups that do not share their native languages. Lingua Franca is also not learned as a mother tongue. Of course, the boundaries between Pidgin, Creole and Lingua Francas are somewhat blurry. In South Africa, for example, English is used as a Lingua Franca. However, it is hard to argue that its tribal variants are completely devout of any local influences or that they are not learned as a native language. Thereby, one could say that South African English spoken by bilingual tribal communities is somewhere along the Creole to lingua franca spectrum. The matter of whether a language is complete in terms of its function is also debatable. I think you get my point. Anyway, with terminology out of the way, at least for now, let's focus on lingua francas. There are three widely recognized types, regional, national, and international. An example of a regional lingua franca is Ilocano, a language spoken in the northern part of Philippines. It has a native population, but is used to communicate beyond its immediate homeland, in the greater region. Tagalog is used to communicate Philippines-wide. It is a national lingua franca. Another example of that would be Russian, spoken by numerous ethnic minorities within the country or say standard Mandarin Chinese. International lingua francas are the big shots that are used to communicate between nations. Good modern day examples are French, Russian, and of course English. And these are really the ones that I'd like to talk about today. Because due to their sheer size, they end up shaping the world significantly more than regional or national lingua francas. And that's why power dynamics between them are so interesting. Indeed, throughout history, dominant international lingua francas changed and shifted, representing and enforcing political realities of the time. In Europe, in the times of the Roman Empire, for example, there were two dominant lingua francas, Latin and Greek. Now, a quick disclosure. When I say dominant here, I mean having the largest number of speakers. Anyway, Roman Empire was incredibly diverse and multi-ethnic. 
It is common knowledge that Romans spoke Latin, but many don't know that Greek was very much appreciated as an equal. For example, new legionary recruits could swear their oath to the emperor in either Latin or Greek, no other language. Latin was preferred as a lingua franca in the west of the empire, while Greek had a stronger foothold in the east. And when the Roman Empire split into Eastern and Western Roman Empires in 285 AD, it split roughly along the lines of the preferred lingua franca. Really, look up the maps. The eventual demise of the Roman Empire and the plummet of Europe into the Dark Ages saw another major lingua franca rising, Arabic. It was chosen as a language of international communication amongst the many nations in Northern Africa and the Middle East. Nations that a few centuries ago were learning Greek or Latin were now absorbed into the newly forged Arabian Empire. Arabic managed to penetrate more deeply than its predecessors, and until today is spoken from Iraq to the east to Morocco in the west. Fast forward half a millennia, and the Arabian Golden Age is fading. Italian mercantilism, together with the Italian language, are starting to establish in the region. The already mentioned Sabir, the bastard Spanish, or as it is most often referred to, the Mediterranean lingua franca, is a good example of this. Italian language was spoken in the main European royal courts throughout the 14th to 16th centuries. It was then replaced by French in northern European courts. The age of colonialism has brought empires wealth way beyond what could have been imagined in the preceding centuries. And wealth allowed these empires to spread and establish their languages as first globe-encircling lingua francas. The colonial era saw both the emergence of English and the further establishment of French as lingua francas. But while French, arguably, has been in a steady decline in terms of its relative influence since the decolonization, English has evolved into the largest lingua franca in the world's history. In fact, in 2012, it overtook Mandarin Chinese as the most spoken language in the world, that is, by the number of speakers. Let me take a moment here to introduce today's guest, Tomasz Kamusela, or Tom for short. Our experience here in the Age of Humans suggests that Toms prove to be very knowledgeable people, and this Tom is no exception. He's a political scientist based in University of St. Andrews, Scotland. He's also a go-to man when it comes to the topic of language politics, and this is what we went to him for. Today, apart from providing some general guidance, he will aid us in imagining the possible futures of the world's lingua francas, as well as lingua francas in the future world. But first, let's hear him explain how English as a lingua franca has risen to its current heights. Our talk with Tom was recorded during the pandemic via Zoom, so the sound quality might thereby be lacking at times. Having said that, let's listen to what Tom has to say. English, obviously, as we use it nowadays for communication and uh, for, uh, across the world, be it in commerce, be it in scholarship, be it in science, technology, you name it, arose to this position, as you call it, uh, as a result of the Second World War. Because the two allied powers which won the war were English speaking, the United States uh, and Britain. So in a way, 
their military and economic and political power underwrote without any plan this kind of dominant position of English across the world. Now, when it comes to the competition amongst languages, Tom has stated that it is actually incorrect to talk about it as such. As long as there are no significant political movements that advocate for installing, say, English as the world's language, the true struggle of power is between the speakers of languages, not languages themselves. That being said, some movements advocating for the adoption of certain languages actually exist. We'll cover a few of them later in today's episode. Moreover, the power struggle between people leaves very clear imprints onto the global fabric of languages, onto its map. Those imprints can in turn tell us a lot about the competitive landscape that shaped them, and thereby they are interesting to study. So, with that out of the way, let's get back to English and its place in the world. Thinking about it in a very simplistic way, there are only two paths it could all go down from here in the next few decades. First is that English will grow further as a lingua franca or maintain its dominant position in terms of the number of speakers. The second one is that it will shrink and give way to something else. Which way it will go is, of course, a relatively difficult question to answer, but let's start somewhere. So the simple assumption or simplistic, I should say, could be if China becomes the first economy in the world when it comes to production, investment, you name it, it should be Chinese becoming a global lingua franca. But, but it is a very simplistic assumption. There are many other factors which need to be taken into account to have, to have a sensible look at, answer, at, at potential answers uh, to this question. What is very often and regrettably forgotten is the fact that our world from the perspective of language politics is divided into two halves. In one half, more or less Eurasia, indigenous languages are used in official capacity as languages of administration and education in a given country. So in France, it is French. In Romania, it is Romanian. In Vietnam, it's Vietnamese. In Mongolia, it is Mongolian. Elsewhere in the world, it is non-indigenous Eurasian and most often European colonial languages which are used in this function. So in Rwanda it was French, nowadays it is English. In Peru it is Spanish. In Canada it is French and English and so on. So look, if these post-colonial states which uh, will continue to use uh, colonial languages in official capacity, I, 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 I don't see English or for that matter, other colonial languages like Spanish, Portuguese, losing their 
position where they were accepted and taken up uh, as languages uh, of uh, uh, education and state administration. You know, it is the place to be observed. And obviously you need to define what does it mean to have the dominant position. Yeah? If you define it uh, purely from the perspective of using a language for official purposes of state administration and education, I mean, the situation is not changing outside Eurasia. All the states which in the process of the colonization decided to use English as an official language, they, they stick to their choices. And actually some countries, the example of Rwanda here comes, actually switched from other quote-unquote colonial languages to English, like from uh, French uh, to, to English. So you, you could say that outside uh, Eurasia, the position of English is going up, if, if you define the dominance in this sense. But what is not possible today under certain political configurations in the future may become possible, you know. As you have heard now, and as you will hear later, Tomasz gives tremendous weight to language politics as a factor influencing language adoption or demise. In the presence of coordinated national political movement to maintain the currently spoken language, it becomes very difficult for a new language to penetrate. In Eurasia, this insistence on the use of indigenous languages and making them into even into the basis and, and often into the fetish of national politics. Uh, I, I cannot see, you know, Lithuania or Romania saying we switch to English. That's it. Let's forget these languages or let alone let us have now Chinese as the dominant uh, language of global communication. Of course, political movements don't only keep the, shall we say, outsider languages out, but also can be used by countries to popularize their languages outside its immediate sphere of influence. And precisely this is done by many. Uh, there was a moment, especially at the beginning of the 21st century, when Mandarin, standard Chinese, was pushed in this function and uh, China invested in, in this strongly. And uh, these uh, Confucius Institute were open all around. And uh, uh, actually nowadays Russia is copying uh, China by opening the Ruski Mir centers of a similar kind. Coming back to English. There's a range of different theories on whether English will retain or lose its status as the dominant lingua franca. Most often, contemplated scenarios contain either the already mentioned switch from English to Chinese, or the continuing domination of English at the expense of smaller native languages. When reading on this topic, however, my attention was caught on the scenario that appeared very different. It came from one of the most renowned linguists of our time, Nicholas Osler. In his book, The Last Lingua Franca, English Until the Return of Babel, 
He argues that not only will English be displaced as the world's language in the non-distant future, but also that it will not be replaced by another. What Osler suggests is that the rise of the relative wealth of China, Brazil, Russia, and other major political powers sets in motion a global movement towards equality, which will in turn downgrade the status of the English-speaking elites. Personally, I am somewhat skeptical about the statement, especially the growing relative wealth of Brazil and Russia part. But what caught my attention was Osler's explanation for why English will be the last global lingua franca. He states that not-so-distant advancements in translation technology will enable seamless coexistence of numerous languages in nearly any setting. In this way, the world would return to something of a technology-enabled state of battle. But is this really possible? Look, unless something strange happens and uh, the political shape uh, of the entire world uh, is completely destroyed and overwhelmed, I cannot see this very salient uh, and important division between Eurasia and the rest of the world in the sense of uh, language of politics. Uh, if this cleavage between the rest of the world and, uh, and Eurasia in, in, this, uh, in the field of language politics is not changed, basically, English and other colonial languages outside Europe uh, will retain their the position because you, you know what, uh, when you have Kenya and everything is done in English at the level of administration and university education, I mean, uh, you, you won't do it overnight in Bengala or in Chinese. Yeah? Uh, you would have to have the transition period and most, most of all, you would have to have uh, a kind of uh, a need to do it, you know, or a foreign power imposing it as the Brits did in the past. Yeah. When I was a student and when Noam Chomsky as a teacher of Nicholas Osler uh, was uh, the most popular linguist uh, in the world, uh, opining uh, on many things regarding languages, it was the time of the generative grammar. Yeah? There was a hope to see languages as shallow structures. There was a belief that there is something never proved to be actually like a deep structure and that the deep structure of languages is a single structure. So basically when you build a tree of, of an English sentence or of a Lithuanian sentence of the meaning of this sentence and to reach the deep structure, the deep structure would be the same so that computers would be translating through the deep structures from one language to another. It was one of the biggest stories of this transformative generative grammar of the second half of the 20th century, but it was based on a pure belief without any proof of the existence of deep structure. However, even with the development of software, it has never worked. And nowadays we have Google Translate yeah? and Google Translate is basically statistical translation. Okay, you can call it neural and so on, but it is just a large sets 
of uh, bilingual of bilingual texts in pairs of languages and the computer uh, the software is just comparing strings uh, of letters in a complete mechanical manner giving us a translation and it works it doesn't work exceptionally well but it works in the past I mean, it rarely worked when it was done in line with uh, other um, underpinning uh, ideas how to translate from one language to another with the use uh, of computers and software. A much more interesting thing, actually, when it comes to technology is speed generation and uh, translating through the use of speech, and it is something to be seen, yeah? because uh, we as scholars and uh, people who are literate, we, we forget that uh, literacy is just another technology uh, of graphic recording of language. But in the past, very few people were literate, and nowadays not everyone is literate, but actually everyone is able of speech. And this is a new frontier. And, and obviously, if this frontier is overcome, this could end up with devices. Uh, you could have, you know, next to your ear and someone is talking in a different language and uh, you can understand what they are talking. But there is always a limit of it, yeah? Because uh, look, if you use Google Translate, it is pairing around 100 languages, which is quite a respected number. But according to various assessments in the world, you have 8,000 languages. Yeah, So the vast majority of languages is missing uh, from, from Google Translate. Google Translate actually works only for languages with large corpora of written texts, written bilingual texts. So Google Translate is translating from one lingua franca to another lingua franca, truly speaking. And if you look at Google Translate from the perspective of this cleavage between Eurasia, where indigenous languages are employed in official capacity, and the rest of the world where colonial European languages are used for the same purpose, you will see that uh, with the exception, I don't know, of five, six, maybe 10 languages, all the languages covered by Google Translate are from Eurasia, which actually is uh, strengthening uh, this uh, cleavage. So I would say technology is mapping out and fortifying uh, this cleavage in language politics uh, between Eurasia and the rest uh, of, of the world. Okay, so just to recap what Tom is saying here, technology may work in favor of multilingualism, except it's the languages that are already prestigious enough that make it to this party. Instead of working towards the reconstruction of the full Tower of Babel, technology might be reconstructing just the top floors of this tower. The VIP lodges with splendid views while in fact doing little to nothing to strengthen the bottom floors. Technology as we use it nowadays is a reflection of economic and power relations as they are now. So 
when uh, when solutions are developed like software for Google Translate, it draws at these power relations, provides solutions for people who live within this network of power relations, and by the same token, reinforces these power relations. Let's put it like this. Many people speak Tatar, the language, the Tatar language in Tatarstan, in Bashkiria, and other places across the Russian Federation and some post-Soviet countries. I mean, it is around 10 million people, yeah? So it, it is uh, quite a few. When it comes to book production, it is like 40 books produced in the Russian uh, Federation per annum, yeah? When you have a look at Lithuania, there are some like two, two and a half, three million speaking the Lithuanian language. Yeah? And there are like several thousand book titles published these days. If the Lithuanians had been in the position of the Tatars in today's Russian Federation, most probably 20 Lithuanian language books would be published today. This means that Tatar, although being a significantly larger language by the number of speakers, simply does not generate the corpus of written material large enough to allow for algorithms to provide us with translations of high quality. As a result, the quality of Tatar translations will likely come out worse than the ones for even significantly smaller languages in terms of the number of speakers, for example, Lithuanian. And here we bump into language politics again. The only reason for why Lithuanian is supported relatively well by modern translation engines, even though so few actually speak it, to a large extent comes down to the fact that it is the official state language mandated by legislation and quite literally written into the law. There are a lot of materials in Lithuanian which are paired with other languages of the European Union yeah? because Lithuania joined the European Union in 2004 and the European Union has this language politics of translating uh, all the documentation into all the official languages of the member states, uh, the languages which the member states want to use. Yeah? Because, for instance, Ireland didn't want to use uh, its own Irish language until 2008. So there are such interesting stories. And Luxembourg is not using its uh, national language of Luxembourgish to this day for this purpose. Yeah? However, if Lithuania had not joined the European Union, the position of the use of the Lithuanian language for a variety of purposes would have been lower. Now, just for the record, Tatar is supported on Google Translate. Google algorithms are now capable of translating between a language pair it has not trained on. Imagine the model was trained on translating between Russian and Tatar, as well as between Bulgarian and Russian. Even if it was not trained to translate between Bulgarian and Tatar specifically, AI is capable of doing it, and this is not achieved by simply translating through Russian. 
Scientists think that these neural networks, which, by the way, are extremely difficult to interpret, are now capable of basic level of semantic interpretation. This means that these AI translators are beginning to translate by meaning, something that many argued machines would never be able to do. There are some interpretations of this that suggest the possibility that these novel and more powerful than ever machine learning algorithms have finally tapped into the deep structure of languages, the existence of which, as Tom has mentioned earlier, is still not proven. Anyway, I get quite excited and carried away when talking about where could technology potentially take us. But truth be told, it already had time to take us many, many places. Internet, for example, has already been around for decades. And studying Internet's language variety is a good way to see how much space for multilingualism there is in the technology-driven world. And the more you look, the more it seems that the Tower of Babel is again not being restored in full. That being said, English is starting to slowly split the pie with other best established languages. You can also look at the content, uh, the internet content in a given language per head of uh, native speakers, uh, L1 speakers in a given language. So out of sudden, you know, English once again has the highest statistics, but the second language, which I mean, Chinese had very low statistics, yeah, because due to censorship and to so-called sovereign internet as the policy of sovereign internet as deployed in China, people are not that active uh, on the internet. Obviously, they are active outside the internet uh, in mobile telephony, but from this perspective, the ratio of language content on the internet in Chinese to the number of native Chinese speakers is pretty poor. Yeah? The second largest ratio of this kind is actually in the case of Russian. Yeah? like 8% of the internet content is available in Russian. And it is the second largest, although not so large, if you want uh, language on the internet, which is obviously a function of the policy of the Ruski Mirs, neo-imperial policy in Russia. So you see how choices kind of impact on the reality of the internet or multilinguality or or the growth or decrease, be it absolute, be it relative, of content and the use of this or that language. Look, when the internet was launched at the beginning of the 90s, practically everything on the internet, including URL addresses, was in English, full stop. It started changing only at the turn of the 21st century when more content was developed in other languages and there was this kind of symbolic change like five years ago or 10 years ago, I don't remember exactly, when it became possible to use different scripts than the Latin script strongly connected to English for URL addresses, you know, like Arabic script, Chinese script, Cyrillic, you name it. Still, however, over 50% of all content on the internet is in English. However, the content in other languages, but in this quote unquote big languages or lingua francas ballooned. 
and the content ballooned only as produced in Eurasian languages. We don't have really any noticeable content in non-Eurasian languages. So yeah, it is changing. I mean, <laughs> uh, but but still, if you look through the perspective of internet content. English is dominant, and English uh, remains the meta language of the internet of cyberspace. More broadly speaking, you can do the same uh, looking uh, at the statistics uh, of uh, the 300 Wikipedia's in different languages. Yeah, the biggest uh, Wikipedia is in English, with the largest number of articles, with the largest number of words in these articles. And uh, when you have a look at other Wikipedias, especially uh, in so-called smaller languages, they use English as the meta language. Yeah? Because obviously when you have Wikipedia in Russian, they use Russian as the language of discussion. But when you have uh, a Wikipedia in Zulu, for instance, they often use English as the language of discussion. So to reiterate, let's return to the original idea of Nicholas Oslip. That English will be the last lingua franca finally replaced by multitudes of languages in something of a technology-enabled state of Babel. Does this have a high likelihood of happening? In a limited sense, it seems yes. From what we've just discussed, it seems that the world just might be tending towards the reconstruction of a fraction of the original Tower of Babel. When researching for this topic, one thing that became very clear is that politics, which ultimately has immense weight when it comes to the landscape of lingua francas, is extremely difficult to forecast. Moreover, the relationship between the politics and the language is not always as straightforward as it might first seem. Tom has given us a good example of this. Look, before the war, you could find a job travel from what today is Trieste in Italy to Moscow in the east, from what today is Stockholm, the capital of Sweden, uh, down to, to the Balkans, uh, speaking German. Now it is impossible. What happened? How come that German, which was an important lingua franca, the most important lingua franca of Central and Eastern Europe in the interwar period, uh, ceased to be a lingua franca after the Second World War. What happened? Okay, guys, that, that's, that's easy and difficult. The easy part is that the borders of Germany were changed and ethnic Germans were expelled from Poland, from Czechoslovakia, from Hungary and from Yugoslavia. Yeah? That's the easy part and it's pretty well known. But if you look at the maps, published in German atlases of the spread of the German language, the language is being spoken from the Netherlands down to Moscow, yeah? from Scandinavia down to the Balkans. Basically, these maps were assuming that German speakers were also Ashkenazic Jews speaking Yiddish. So basically, killing Jews in the Holocaust, the speakers of Yiddish killed German as a lingua franca. And that's the answer. Of course, if Germans had had it their own way in the mid-20th century, 
probably the whole Europe would have been a part of uh, German Lebensraum, right? Settled by Germans and speaking German. But the way things have turned out, Germans have, in their own right, exterminated German as a regional lingua franca. A prime example of a political risk gone bad. In Europe, we are now in interesting crossroads when it comes to lingua franca. After Brexit, Ireland is the only European Union country that uses English as their official language, alongside Gaelic-Irish, of course. It is still somewhat unclear which country will act as an ideological leader for the Union. Many say that Germany will continue in this role as they did for the last few decades, but with Angela Merkel stepping down, some speculate that this role will now be taken up by France. Having said that, it is even more unclear whether the landscape of European Union lingua francas will reflect these changes or will English remain most widely used within European diplomacy. I would like to dedicate the remainder of this episode to telling you about the efforts of constructing lingua francas. That is, constructing them by sitting down and painstakingly creating the grammar, the phonetics, the dictionary, and carefully tying it all together to make a functional language. I would like to talk about it not only because it's interesting, but also out of the sheer respect for the effort and thought that have been invested into these projects. Designing an artificial language is a tremendously ambitious task, and, probably, typically taken up by very ambitious people. It is then no wonder that a very large share of these languages were designed to become the world's lingua francas. The first relative success in this field was achieved by Volopik, constructed by Johann Martin Schleyer in the 1880s. Johann was a Roman Catholic priest in Baden, Germany and reportedly woke up one morning having received a command from the god to construct an international language that would foster greater understanding between the nations and thereby help achieve world peace. This is in fact the motivation behind the creation of many constructed languages. In any case, Volopik had his grammar made up of typically Indo-European traits and vocabulary, mostly adapted from English, German and French. The language and what it stands for quickly found a large band of admirers. Almost a decade later, in 1889, there were an estimated 283 language clubs, 25 periodicals in or about Volopuk, and 316 textbooks in 25 languages. But about a thousand kilometers to the east, another proposal for a global lingua franca has already made its first steps into the public. We are, of course, talking about Esperanto. It was created in the late 1870s to early 1880s by a Polish-Jewish ophthalmologist from Bielystok, now in northeastern Poland, called Ludwig Leitzer Zamenhof. Here's an extract from his letter to a friend explaining why he took upon the task of creating a global language. The place where I was born and spent my childhood gave direction to all my future struggles. In Belistok, the inhabitants were divided into four distinct elements. Russians, Poles, Germans and Jews. Each of these spoke their own language and looked on all the others as enemies. In such a town, a sensitive nature feels more acutely than elsewhere the misery caused by language division and sees at every step that the diversity of languages is the first or at least the most influential basis for the separation of the human family into the groups of enemies. I was brought up as an idealist. I was taught that all people were brothers, 
While outside in the street, at every step, I felt that there were no people, only Russians, Poles, Germans, Jews, and so on. This was a great torment to my infant mind, although many people may smile at such an anguish for the world in a child. Since that time, I always thought that grown-ups were omnipotent, so I often said to myself that when I grew up, I would certainly destroy this evil. Zamenhof's Esperanto, that translates to the one that hopes, was in essence another Indo-European language. The phonetics and the semantics were essentially Slavic, whereas the vocabulary derives primarily from the Romance languages, with lesser contributions from Germanic, Slavic, and Greek. By 1887, the first Esperanto grammar book was published in Warsaw. It caught on quickly, first in the Russian Empire and in Central Europe. Later, it spread into Western Europe and the Americas. It quickly cast a shade over Volopyuk, becoming the widest spoken constructed language in the history of the world. Numerous language clubs, publications, and conferences. It even made it to the school curriculums in Hungary and China. Amongst the most enthusiastic Esperantists, even an emerging population of native speakers had started to emerge. Since 1905, Esperanto Congress has been held in a different country each year. And indeed, in the year 1905, one could have said that Esperanto was off to a great start in terms of achieving the goals of its creator within the next century. But as we all know now, Esperanto is far from a global lingua franca. So what happened? The core of Esperanto enthusiasts were based in the location of its origin, somewhere in between Central and Eastern Europe. During the World War I, many dreams of world unity and peace had fallen apart. The annual Esperanto Congress did not take place for the first time since 1905. And even though it had restarted after the war, Esperanto had started to decline in popularity. That can again be, to a large extent, attributed to the political developments in the region. In 1923, if I'm not mistaken, there was a vote in the League of Nations on making Esperanto another official language in the League of Nations, but it was the French who killed the vote. So it is also <laughs> telling, <laughs> because the French wanted uh, the French language to continue as a language of diplomacy and uh, as a language of quote-unquote uh, what used to be called high culture. On one side, Germany was crumbling under the weight of retributions they have committed to paying for starting and losing the war, as well as the rampant inflation with its citizens stuck in a miserable state of poverty and uncertainty. With the National Socialist Party, or the Nazis, eventually coming to power, and Hitler seeing Esperanto as a part of global Jewish conspiracy, its speakers became targets of persecution. In the Eastern Front, in the newly forced Soviet Union, Esperanto was first embraced. Actually, revolutionist and Esperantist ideologies made for quite a good match. Both were talking about unity and equality between all, regardless of one's nationality or trade. This relationship worked quite fine in the beginning, while the Soviet ideals of, quote, bringing the light of communism to the world were still at least somewhat observed. Over time, however, especially with Joseph Stalin in power of the Soviet Union, it started transforming into a paranoid closed state. Eventually, nearly any form of activism was rendered a danger to the regime, and the Esperanto community was effectively broken down. Meanwhile, 
in smaller Eastern European states that, after a long break, enjoyed their freedom from imperial powers? All focus was drawn to a somewhat fetishist nationalism, pushing Esperanto and the ideas that came with it aside. That being said, the language has survived. In his own words, Samenhof wanted mankind to learn and use, in mass, the proposed language as a living one. Not sure about the in mass part, but Esperanto, at least on a small scale, fulfilled Samenhof's dream. With an exception of the years in world wars, annual Esperanto conventions are still ongoing since 1905. There are around 3.5 Esperanto books published per year and a group of 2,000 native speakers. A quick interesting fact, George Soros is actually one of them. There are also some non-profit organizations which use it as their official language. Vatican runs an Esperanto language radio. It's the official language in the International Academy of Sciences of San Marino. Also, China uses it in China Radio International. All in all, Esperanto, although not as impressive as envisioned, still holds as the constructed language that came the closest to becoming a global lingua franca. Esperanto is a pretty successful lingua franca these days. What is interesting, you have Esperanto users all around the world. Yeah? If you are a member of this network, it functions like extended family or like preferential tourist network. Wherever you go to a country you don't know the language of, you can find an Esperantist and, you know, be wine, dined and shown around. And knowing Esperanto, you don't know any other language, but still you can communicate all over the world, including Vietnam, including China, Korea, you name it. Yeah? I will give you an example from my own field. I don't know Albanian. Yeah? And I wanted to go to Albania and to do research and to understand what's going on. Yeah? And that's not easy. Until recently, they didn't know other languages I speak, yeah? like English. Yeah? And let's say I could cheat my way in Serbo-Croatian, but in Kosovo, they would hate to speak it. Yeah? So it was no go, <laughs> truly speaking. Uh, I can understand Italian, but I cannot talk it. Yeah? So I was kind of pooped. What to do? Yeah? Okay, I have an Esperanto friend. Do you know some Esperanto guys in Albania who could show me around and, you know, connect me to some other scholars? Yeah, no problem. So truly speaking, I wrote several articles on Albanian issues through this Esperanto connection, not even knowing Esperanto. But obviously, I'm a kind of lying and not knowing Esperanto. Because if you know one Germanic or Romance language, and actually English is both, you know Esperanto. Very often when I check up Wikipedia, I check up Esperanto Wikipedia because it has a great slant, non-national slant, on a lot of issues when it comes to history and, and politics. So I encourage you to check up the Esperanto Wikipedia. There have been more recent attempts to construct a global lingua franca too. For example, in 2010, a group of enthusiasts from St. Petersburg constructed Lingua de Planeta, a mix of 10 most spoken languages in the world, namely English, Chinese, Hindi, Spanish, French, Arabic, Russian, Portuguese, German, and Persian. Actually, if the language were truly based on the 10 most spoken languages in the world, Bengali and Indonesian should be there instead of German and Persian. In any case, the idea section of the official website of Lingua de Planeta 
outlines the desired qualities of global lingua franca, and among them is the trait that might be responsible for all of the attempts to construct lingua francas, neutrality. Indeed, if the goal would only be to simply have a single universally understood language, the easiest way to go about achieving it would be to teach everyone the currently most popular language out there, in our case, English. People who construct artificial languages, however, believe that the lingua franca should be impartial, not favor any one people group in particular. Indeed, if everyone was just forced to learn English, the native speakers of it would have what some might call an unfair advantage. I trust that many of you will know how hard it is to sound smart and serious in a language that you don't have a full command of. Having said that, all most notable attempts of constructing an impartial language have resulted in further establishing the already mentioned bias towards Eurasian languages, and most of them favoring Indo-European languages in particular. In this sense, all of the constructed languages failed, and quite possibly because they were facing an impossible task. I would argue that it is impossible to construct an objectively fair and impartial lingua franca, simply because the definition of what is fair, well, it's up to debate. Esperanto, from today's perspective of the decolonized world, is not as neutral as it used to be, because you have to remember it was written, still is, in the Latin script, and the Latin script is connected to the West. Yeah? And it is built from Romance elements and Germanic elements. So it is, it is not easy to understand for people all around the world. Yeah? It is easy to understand for, for people who know a Romance language or a Germanic language. This episode is coming to an end. We have touched on many topics and viewpoints. That's why I'd like to make a small recap so that what we've learned would not get lost in the ocean of information. So, today we have talked about lingua francas, their past as well as their possible futures. From everything we touched on, I'd say that what stuck to me the most were these three things. First, that the world just might be tending to a technology-enabled state of truncated babel. In other words, a multilingual society that speaks relatively few major languages. Second, that politics has a tremendous yet difficult to predict impact on languages, and especially how effective active language policies can be. And third, that it is impossible to construct an objectively fair and impartial lingua franca. I encourage you to think about what conclusions have you made during this episode and take a moment to save them in your heads. That was all I wanted to share with you on the topic and I hope you have enjoyed. In the next episode, Stefan will cover some intricacies of effective interpersonal communication. To get notified about that, follow us on Instagram at Age of Humans. If you're interested in reading more of Tom's work, this is where you can find it. You can go on, on Amazon and, and, and have a look at the books which I publish. And if you are interested uh, more in my stuff, which, which I wrote, articles and so on, you can go at my staff website at the University of St. Andrews and have a look at it, or Academia. We will post some material related to this episode on Instagram, so make sure to check that out at Age of Humans. 
Also, follow us if you want to be updated on further episode releases. All our artwork has been created by an inspiring artist and friend, Misha. You can find more of her work at Misha Artwork on Instagram. She sells the prints of her works on Etsy, and I genuinely recommend visiting her shop. Link in the episode description. I do not only recommend it as a friend, but also as a customer. I particularly appreciate her depictions of dreamy, fairy tale like landscapes, and you might too. Also, special thanks to our friend Josh Moms, who has created a good portion of our sound effects and music. Our intro piece was a tremendous task of fitting six distinct musical epochs into one 15-second piece, and he did a wonderful job. Josh is a composer, and you can find more of his arrangements on his YouTube channel, link in the episode description. Again, thanks for listening, and until soon.